0: Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Doctor Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers now; get to know them and discover the stories behind the science.
1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today, I'm happy to welcome Ian Mays from Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, You got your PhD from Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. After that, you moved to do a postdoc at the Rockefeller University. You then became assistant professor in 2014 and are now professor in neuroscience and pharmacological science at Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science?
2: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, I actually grew up, I guess, uh, not unlike many academics, as the son of two academics, uh, slightly different field. Uh, my parents were anthropologists. Uh, one was a cultural anthropologist, and one was a primatologist. Um, and so, I grew up uh, around uh, people doing research, and and also getting to travel and. Uh, study slightly different types of things than I'm doing now, uh, but it really got me interested, um, kind of from a very early age. And also because of the nature of their work, uh, I got to travel with them a lot uh, on their studies. And so I was even involved in some of the early process, um, you know, of, of doing interviews and handing out surveys and the types of things that they were doing at that time. So uh, that that got my uh, got me initially interested, kind of in science and scientific method. Um, but I really became uh, most interested, I think, when I I was a senior in high school and took an anatomy physiology class, uh, and at that point, I caught the bug and uh, ended up going into um, biology and, and microbiology as an undergrad, and also doing research almost throughout the entirety of my undergrad.
1: So, were you were aware of an academic career from the beginning, right? So,
2: yes, I was. I was, and it also seemed like a very, uh, a very positive career in a lot of ways. It you know, it seemed like a lot of fun uh, based on what I was seeing from my parents growing up.
1: I'm coming to your science uh, that centers around understanding the complex interplay between chromatin regulatory mechanisms in brain and neural plasticity. I want to start in the year 2010. Uh, there you were first author on a science paper titled Essential Role of, of the Histone Methyltransferase G9A in Cocaine-Induced Plasticity. Um, there you look at cocaine addiction and gene expression changes in neurons. Um, what got you interested in this field and what did you learn about the connection of cocaine addiction and epigenetics in this study?
2: Yeah, so it really all kind of starts when I was an undergrad. I uh, had started working in a, in a neurophysiology lab, a, a honeybee neurophysiology lab, where we were interested in looking at uh, modeling social insects for the study of certain types of psychiatric disorders, in particular, ethanol taking and drug taking. Uh, and this ultimately led me uh, to a path towards uh, my time as a research technician at the University of California, San Francisco, where I worked with Elrica Hebeline, uh, basically um, doing behavioral genetic screening to look at drug sensitivity mutants uh, uh, and so forth. And so it was my interest in kind of neuroepigenetics and, and chromatin regulatory mechanisms really started, when I started graduate school, um, I joined Eric Nussler's lab first uh, at UT Southwestern Medical Center before he moved uh, to Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And it was really the beginning of the, as I always call it, the neuroepigenetics boom, right? So this was the time in which people were originally figuring out that histone modifications and DNA modifications were indeed being regulated by things that um, could asso- could potentially associate with behavioral outcomes, uh, and so we were kind of at that early phase of being able to identify how these things were changing in response to different models, whether it be uh, drug addiction models, stress models, learning and memory models, and then trying to develop approaches where we could manipulate the enzymes or the reader proteins that were uh, directly involved in those processes to look at functional outcomes and I think much to our surprise, we were able to, you know, just by manipulating some of these system modifications in a relatively uh, global sense at that time, uh, we were able to really drive phenotypic changes from electrophysiological to uh, behavioral changes. And so that really, I think, has has uh, spurred my entire career. Um, and I'm, you know, of course, very excited about this area still, but now probably moving into much more of the, the mechanistic front.
1: Um, can you maybe just, uh, for those who don't know, explain what G9A does?
2: Sure. Yeah. So G9A is a, a histone methyltransferase. Um, it also can methylate other uh, proteins as well. Uh, it's a nuclear protein that um, uh, forms a complex with another uh, protein called GLP or EHMT1. Uh, and they are responsible for depositing H3K9 dimethylation, uh, which is a kind of faculative heterochromatic state. So it's a repressive histone state. Uh, and what we had found in those initial studies was that G9A itself was actually repressed Following chronic uh, cocaine uh, administrations, we also later went on to show uh, similar outcomes with chronic opioid uh, administrations. And this led to global decreases within uh, the ventral uh, midbrain uh, that basically led to kind of a hyperactive transcriptional state that seemed to potentiate behavioral sensitivity to subsequent treatments with drugs of abuse.
1: Uh, what was the reason for this specific location? Is this that G9a has a different expression pattern in, in those in, in the brain, or what was the?
2: No, so yeah, so G9a is actually ubiquitously expressed throughout the brain, but at the time, because we were focused on cocaine sensitivity, we were focused primarily on the nucleus accumbens, which is in the ventral striatum, uh, and it's a part of the brain that's very important for integration of reward signaling. So we were actually starting our studies there, and we ended up, you know, uh, further in our studies looking at other related brain regions, uh, but at the it was basically a candidate regional approach uh, that we were taking. Then we were using a number of screening methods to identify which types of enzymes that regulate chromatin function may be altered uh, by these chronic exposures to drugs uh, and
1: or stress. And you then followed up on this study with a PNAS paper that was published in 2011. Um, there you looked more deeply into chromatin structure, more specifically at alterations in heterochromatin. So what did you find find there then?
2: Yeah, so this was, a, to, to us, a very kind of surprising outcome. So, you know, we had been focused on this faculative heterochromatic state, this H3K9 dimethylation state, um, but there's an associated uh, higher uh, valence order state called H3K9 trimethylation, which is purely heterochromatic, and is thought to be involved in the repression of things like repetitive elements uh, and so forth. And so we had started just to see, actually, initially as a control, to see whether this purely heterochromatic state would probably remain stagnant uh, in the context of drugs of abuse. And what we actually found is that it also was showing dynamic alterations in its global expression, uh, and it seemed to be associating with altered heterochromatic states throughout the nucleus accumbens in response to drugs of abuse. And we suggested in that paper that this could be leading to um, the kind of de-repression of certain repetitive elements, things like retrotransposons and so forth, uh, that may in turn lead to alterations in genomic architecture. Uh, and therefore um, behavior. So it, to us, it was very surprising that such purely heterochromatic states could also be influenced uh, simply by this type of environmental exposure.
1: So the lysine 9 on histone 3 is a very dynamic lysine, right? It can be acetylated, it can be monomethylated, dimethylated, trimethylated. So this is like, um, if you have dimethylation, it's still reversible, and trimethylation is more constant, or is, it, is everything dynamic?
2: Well, so, I mean, I think the at the time of those papers, the dogma was that, you know, H3K9 trimethylation was going to be static. You know, once you've established heterochromatic states, they're stabilized by other repressive complexes, such as the heterochromatin protein 1 complex. Um, this also allows for the establishment of DNA methylation profiles that, in turn, will lead to this stable state. Um, H3K9 dimethylation faculty of heterochromatin tends to be slightly more dynamic, although it's typically thought of a, as a mark that controls basically the repression of genes that shouldn't be expressed within a given tissue. So for example, you may be turning off adipose genes within the brain using this type of mark. So the fact that you can uh, basically reduce the expression of this modification, thereby leading to the inappropriate expression of, you know, perhaps transcription factors and things that shouldn't be expressed within those tissues uh, is quite surprising. So I think the the lesson here is that despite the fact that the field had thought they were very static, uh, they are actually much more dynamic than we originally thought.
1: You then also looked more into the function of G9A in neural subtype specification. Um, What did you find there about the function of G9A? Yeah,
2: so that that study started, uh, I guess, kind of as a simple follow-up to the original uh, science manuscript. So the nucleus accumbens is a heterogeneous um, region of the brain. It contains two major subtypes of D1 receptor-expressing neurons. Uh, They're called medium spiny neurons. They express either the D1 or D2 receptor. And there's also a number of um, uh, interneuron subtypes Uh, We know a lot in terms of cocaine's actions and drug actions on how they regulate or how the, uh, the behavioral outputs are regulated by these different cell populations. And so the original study was to try to understand where those changes in G9A and H3K9 dimethylation were happening. Were they happening in the D1 receptor-expressing medium-spiny neuron or the D2 receptor-expressing MSN? And so what we found is that, you know, uh, not kind of surprisingly is that we are seeing alterations also within the D2 receptor-expressing population, which is typically not thought uh, to be driving most of the actions or the acute actions of cocaine. Uh, and this led us down a path to kind of figuring out that actually, G9A within the D2 receptor expressing medium spiny neurons seems to be very important for establishing the subtype identity of those neurons. And in fact, if you knock out G9A during early development, it actually causes the D2 receptor expressing neurons to become more like D1 receptor expressing neurons. They start to express the D1 receptor, they start to respond to D1 receptor agonists, and so forth. Uh, and so it led us down a path to kind of a hypothesis that perhaps. In response to chronic drug exposures, you're actually losing neural subtype identity to some degree, and that that may also be contributing to these kind of uh, hyper-responsive phenotypes that we see in response to cocaine and other drugs of abuse.
1: After this, and I think I <laughs> I uh, uh, got this correctly from the authors on the paper, you joined the lab of David Ellis, and okay. there you switched gears a, a little bit, um, still focusing on neurology, but moving away from cocaine addiction, uh, you there looked at histone turnover in neurons. Um, what did you find there then?
2: Yeah. So I I went to David Allison's lab for my postdoc because, again, I I wanted to really try to move the neuroepigenetics field towards more of a a mechanistic uh, type of approach. And I think that, you know, David Allison is obviously a pioneer uh, in that type of work. And so when I moved to his lab, the ultimate goal was to see whether we could integrate basic chromatin biochemical approaches with neurobiological phenotyping, right, to really attribute mechanism Uh, And so I switched gears because at the time in David's lab, there was a a heavy focus or heavy emphasis on histone variants. So these small amino acid substitution histone uh, proteins that seem to be having very specific actions within the genome. So for example, they had published studies that suggested that certain histone H3 variants, in particular one called histone H3.3, may, as they called it, barcode the genome. So it would exist within very specific pockets of the genome, and it would serve to drive very specific Uh, recruitment of certain reader proteins and ultimately transcriptional activity. So that's how I started in David's lab. I wanted to see if histone H3.3 may be doing something interesting. And the uh, reason for doing this is because histone H3.3 is a replication independent histone variant, so it does not require cell division. And of course this seemed like a perfect way to start since I was studying post mitotic neurons that obviously don't have uh, replication. And so when I started, I I guess at first there was a bit of a fizzle because we started performing a lot of mass spectrometry to identify how H3.3 versus the canonical H3.1 and 2 dynamics may change in the brain throughout development. And what we originally found is that actually H3.3 in both human and in rodent brain effectively saturates the genome by mid-adolescence. So there is no variant anymore. It just becomes almost exclusively H3.3, at least within the post-mitotic pool. But this allowed us to address another important question, again, going against, I think, uh, traditional dogma in the field, which suggested that histones themselves within the central nervous system remain static. They are not turned over at a very high rate. And there were a lot of mass spec studies that kind of suggested this. And basically what we were able to show is that this is actually not entirely true, that histone H3 remains highly dynamic throughout very specified regions of the genome. It's very important for activity-dependent transcription, which in turn is important for things like synaptic development and connectivity, electrophysiological responses to activity, and ultimately um, certain types of behaviors that respond to the environment, things like learning and uh, memory-based behaviors.
1: Okay, I just need to wrap my my brain around the question I want to ask. <laughs> so, um, you have those canonical histones that get only integrated during um, mitosis, right? And then you have those other the variants that get not integrated during mitosis, but only when the is not uh, dividing anymore, right? So these are yes. so it's is it like a black or white picture?
2: Uh, it's not black or white. I mean, so in a lot of you know uh, proliferative cell populations, you will find H3.1, two, and three deposited throughout the genome. Uh, actually, when I joined David's lab, there was a beautiful uh, cell paper from Aaron Goldberg uh, who had established that you know H3.3 did exist within uh, mouse stem cells, for example, and it seemed to be very important for uh, certain aspects of transcriptional plasticity. But I think the idea when I started was that maybe these this barcoding, if you will, would be especially important within the postmitotic neurons. But again, it turned out that, you know, after a while, you know, a number of years, certainly in the human brain, that you just basically turn over all of your canonical histones and you're left only with the replication independent H3.3. But again, this histone remains highly dynamic uh, uh, in a, in a um, proteasomal dependent fashion, uh, and it is very important for activity-dependent transcriptional processes in these cells.
1: So when you have modifications on those uh, H3.3 histones, um, they might also be turned over and there is, uh, as you said, a lot of dynamics and also in those histones.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we, we were able to, to some degree, by doing commentorial histone uh, PTM profiling in collaboration with Ben Garcia's group and others, we were able to dissociate, to some degree, the turnover events themselves from the histone modifications. Uh, but of course, I mean, this is going to play into it, you know, the idea being that basically histones act as a barrier to transcriptional processes in response to activity-dependent Uh, the the need for activity-dependent transcription, you need to rapidly be able to remove those histones that are in front of the polymerase machinery, and then you need to be able to replace them. One of the surprising things that we found, though, is that you're not just pulling off the histones that are basically in front of the polymerase machinery, and then putting them back on behind the transcriptional uh, machinery, it actually seems that you're degrading off the histones that are coming uh, from during those transcriptional processes and replacing them with uh, potentially unmodified forms. So you have to be able to rapidly basically reestablish whatever that post-translational modification landscape is that will be allow it for subsequent uh, activity-dependent events.
1: Um, after that, um, you started your own lab, um, and then you yeah, needed to decide what to focus on, right? So can you maybe take us on the journey of uh, yeah, when you decided what to you want to do in your own lab?
2: Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, obviously, I think every uh, young PI is trying to find their niche, and, and I was trying to carve my niche in this area by coming from more of a functional neuroepigenetic standpoint and moving into the more basic chromatin biochemistry realm. And so I, I guess I had identified three major areas um, that I thought could be interesting to look at. Uh, one was basically going back to rehash a lot of the data from proliferative cells to see whether or not these chromatin mechanisms actually apply in post mitotic neurons. Because I think that my postdoctoral work suggested that some of these you know, core mechanisms may not actually be true in non-proliferative cells. Uh, on the other hand, I didn't feel like basically just going back to the field and finding things and reassessing over and over if they happen in neurons. Uh, The other was kind of looking, again, at the cellular heterogeneity issue. You know, I've always been very fascinated by the fact that you have so many different neural populations, you know, neuronal populations, glial cell types. uh, And this is still something, of course, my lab is very interested in. But the one thing that really kind of caught my attention was this idea that, you know, because the brain is kind of a unique biochemical system in comparison to a lot of these classically studied systems from stem cells and yeast to, you know, hex cells and HeLa cells, uh, even cancer cells. Um, I wanted to see whether or not there may be kind of novel mechanisms based on the unique metabolic demands of the central nervous system uh, that could be interesting to study. So this could be novel classes of post-translational modifications. It could be novel reader proteins, uh, things that are enriched or solely expressed within neurons or glia or just enriched in the brain uh, and maybe regulating chromatin outputs. And so that's really kind of where my lab is focused, both on those two realms, um, you know, novel reader proteins, novel post-translational modifications and how they regulate uh, neuroplasticity and ultimately behavior.
1: Yeah, when it comes to novel post-translation modification, I guess there are two major ones that you um since published, mm-hmm. um, and the one that uh, caught my attention was histone serotonylation. Can you maybe briefly give a little bit of background to this modification and its function neurons, and also what you found out about it?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I, I like to always kind of uh, give credit where credit is due in terms of how we got on to identifying that histones could be serotonin-related. Um, so, you know, again, you know, things like serotonin, these the hydrophobic monomines like serotonin and dopamine, histamine and norepinephrine, uh, from a neuroscience perspective, I tend to, I think we tend to look at these relatively reductionistically, right? We think about them as being chemical messengers that are released from one neuron, engage with a postsynaptic receptor and drive downstream cellular signaling cascades to alter the plasticity of those cells. And of course, this is all true. I, I, I don't think any of our work has suggested that this is not true. There's a, a great amount of literature as well as Nobel Prizes that have been won for this type of work. Um, but what was interesting to me is that I had come across a number of papers but before we kind of uh, started these studies, it suggested that there was a large pool of these molecules within the monoaminergic neurons that actually was not sequestered to vesicles. So they weren't in the vesicles ready for somatic release to undergo this kind of process of chemical neurotransmission. And this was a little contrary to the way we think about these things, because typically we think that if there's a non-vesicularized monoamine, that it will be very quickly degraded or oxidized, and therefore it will not have functionality. But it turns out that there's quite a large pool of these things within the cell, and they also exist within the nucleus. And if you go back to the literature as early as 1971, Anne Young, Candice Peart, Saul Snyder published a paper in Science that showed that histamine, for example, within the brain is almost exclusively nuclear throughout late embryogenesis and early postnatal development. So there was evidence to suggest that monoamines uh, can exist in this extravesicular form as well as in the nucleus. At the same time, there was a paper from Michael Bader's group at the Max uh, Delbrick in Berlin who had shown that proteins could be serotoninated. right? Now, this was based on a kind of chemical literature from the 1950s about polyamine, polyamine incorporation into um, into proteins. Uh, the problem, though, I think, with a lot of the early studies on serotonylation was that they were done purely in situ, right? So it was not actually looking at an endogenous signal in chem- characterizing function. And so basically that's how it got us started. We thought, okay, you have nuclear monomines or the possibility of that. You have the possibility of modifications. And so we set out to figure out whether or not these modifications actually occur endogenously. And if so, on which proteins and what would their functions be? And so we have now identified thousands of substrates of these different types of modifications for things like serotonin dopamineylation, and so forth uh, in the brain. Some are cytosolic, some are synaptic, and of course, some are nuclear, uh, such as the, pro- the histone H3 uh, monomunilation states that we've been studying. And just very, very quickly, the, uh, the way we tend to think about these things uh, histone aminolations can exist in basically two states that we've identified thus far. They can either coexist with adjacent lysine 4 methylation, because these happen on glutamine 5 on histone H3 exclusively. And when you have this combinatorial modification, it seems to do one of two things. It both hyper-recruits certain reader proteins that are involved in initiating transcription. So for example, the TAF3 is part of the general transcription factor, TF2D. It also blocks the ability of demethylases to engage with lysine 4 methylation and thereby take it off. So it helps to stabilize uh, that kind of active state. Um, And so that's kind of the way we've studied them. We've also now identified these marks can exist in isolation from lysine 4 methylation uh, where they may have a different function. Uh, More on that to come. I don't want to give too much away, but they they do seem to have a, a kind of a opposing function of what you would expect when in the context of lysine 4 methylation.
1: Do you also, or are you also looking at the enzyme that is putting them mark there? Or is that something that you will look into in the future?
2: Uh, yeah. So, you know, we have identified at least, I will say at least one of the enzymes um, that we know can deposit the modification, and that's the tissue transglutaminase 2 enzyme. Uh, it's a transaminating protein, very complicated protein, has a lot of different functions. Uh, it can also Deaminate proteins, Uh, again, I'd like to see more on that to come. We have some interesting mechanisms related to the removal uh, process for these uh, different modifications. Um, However, uh, we do believe, you know, the transglutaminase family is a large family. Um, We know that it's possible that the other family members can also achieve this modification. Uh, And we have some work in the lab that suggests that even in certain cell types where TG2 and the TG uh, family is not highly expressed, that we may actually still see these modifications, perhaps in lower abundance, but it does suggest that maybe there are alternative enzymes that can can do this. Uh, So we're very interested, of course, in the the addition and removal mechanism for these marks.
1: Yeah, I guess today is a good timing for this interview because uh, just yesterday um, I saw a tweet from you or your lab, uh, whoever manages your lab, a Twitter account, <laughs> um, talking about a paper that came out came out in Nature yesterday, or at least uh, the online version. Um, there you investigate a second modification, namely dopaminilation uh, of histone H3. Um, and you also went back to cocaine addiction, which uh, you initially started on. Um, so could you also give maybe a Brief background to dopa and what you found in this paper and about this modification.
2: Sure, yeah. So, we, um, you know, kind of stemming from our work on the identification and kind of mechanistic characterization of H3 glutamine-5-serotonylation, it, of course, begged the question about whether other hydrophobic monoamines, things like dopamine and histamine and so forth, can also serve as donors for this type of modification. And so the first manuscript that we published on this was in 2020. Uh, this was a paper in Science where we established the existence of H3-glutamine-5-dopamineylation. Uh, but in this case, we weren't just interested in kind of mechanistically characterizing it, although we are interested in doing that. But we wanted to see whether or not these types of modifications. We're sensitive to environmental exposures where dopamine dynamics are dramatically altered. And so, again, coming from a drug addiction field, being very interested in, in, in kind of dope, you know, traditional dopamine release dynamics and response to drugs of abuse, uh, we decided to look at cocaine self-administration models or volitional uh, drug intake models in rodents. Where we found in this science paper that um, in response to chronic cocaine self-administration and then forced abstinence, we take the drug basically away from these animals that have been enjoying taking it for quite some time. uh, We found that there was actually a kind of inappropriate or aberrant accumulation of H3Q5 dopamine specifically within the ventral tegmental area, which is a dopaminergic nucleus that releases dopamine uh, into one of the main reward processing centers of the brain, which again is the nucleus accumbens. And we were later able to show that by having too much of this H3Q5 dopamine in the VTA, it seemed to promote an aberrant transcriptional profile that led to hyper-dopaminergic release dynamics in response to subsequent drug cues. So one of the problems, of course, with drug taking is that even when people come off of drugs, they can still remain highly sensitive to relapse or vulnerable to relapse, I should say, even at periods that are are far out from when they last took that drug. They see a drug cue and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, they have a compulsion to take that drug. We believe that one of the ways that this works is by having too much of that dopamine signal, you've set the path to basically make the neurons so sensitive to seeing those drug cues that automatically the animals want to take more of the drug. And by basically uh, attenuating that aberrant accumulation, we can attenuate uh, cocaine seeking types of behaviors. So just following up the paper that was published uh, just on, um, I guess yesterday, or maybe it was this weekend, uh, it was actually in Neuropsychopharmacology, it's a Nature Press, but it's not Nature, Um, but we were able to basically extend upon the work from the science paper, uh, to show that indeed this is not just happening with psychostimulants like cocaine, but indeed it also happens with other drugs of abuse, heavily abused drugs, such as opioids. And in the case of this paper, we were studying heroin self-administration. Uh, again, we found that also you get this aberrant accumulation in the VTA. It seems to be promoting these transcriptional profiles that lead to heightened vulnerability to relapse. One interesting thing I'll just mention though, that kind of distinguishes the two papers is that while the genes that are dysregulated between cocaine uh, taking or cocaine withdrawal and heroin withdrawal are effectively the same genes, but interestingly, they're affected in opposite patterns. However, H3Q5 dopamine seems to be able to control them in those specific patterns within the context of specific drugs of abuse. And so this is something, of course, we're very interested in teasing apart now more from a mechanistic standpoint.
1: So you looked at um, heroin and cocaine, and is this something general to any kind of addiction, or is this very specific?
2: You know, I think we're starting to see that it's more general. I don't want to I don't want to overstate because we haven't looked at every drug of abuse. Uh, we are starting to look at uh, ethanol self administration, where we also see uh, alterations in dopaminelation within the VTA. Although I will say that. We started to parse this apart. You know, a lot of our early studies uh, in rodents were done in male rodents. We're now starting to look at them in female rodents. And we are starting to see some interesting uh, divergences in terms of the regulation of gene expression and so forth, depending on uh, whether you're looking at male versus uh, female rats. And so more on that to come. But there's definitely, uh, does seem to be a relatively generalized mechanism across multiple classes of drugs of abuse.
1: Yeah, we already talked about it a little bit and we you already teased about it so my next question obviously is what are you working on right now and what are your plans let's say for the next five years to come um maybe not teasing too much but maybe there's some something you still can share
2: sure yeah i mean so i think you know one one area of course that's very obvious is trying to understand whether these things happen with other hydrophobic monamine donors things like histamine and norepinephrine uh, I will say that of course we not surprisingly we know that these do happen although the mechanisms of action between certain monoamines can uh, be can, can diverge in terms of how they recruit reader proteins to regulate transcriptional processes. So we're very excited specifically about differences between histamineylation, which is actually a charged amino acid versus things like dopamineylation, and serotonylation. Uh, So we have some interesting work in that area. Again, we're focused on how these modifications function when they're not in the context of lysine-4 uh, methylation and trying to identify very specific reader uh, proteins that may interact with single versus combinatorially uh, modified states to look at their uh, downstream function. Uh, and one other area, of course, we're very interested in is trying to tease apart what other proteins are modified in this way and what are the functional outputs. So in collaboration with some of our brilliant collaborators such as Tom Muir at Princeton, we've been able to generate different types of probes where we can basically endogenously immunoprecipitate all of the different monoaminylated proteins within different cellular compartments of the brain or other cell types. And again, we're finding thousands of potential substrates for these modifications. Some of them in the brain are very important synaptic to nuclear signaling molecules that may also be helping to explain how you can integrate signals from the synapse to the nucleus to drive these downstream uh, transcriptional programs. So we have a lot of things going on related to these studies. Uh, We're also interested, for example, in non-endogenous monoaminolation. So, you know, there are monoamines, drugs, small molecule inhibitors and such that are given for a variety of conditions that look a lot like endogenous monomines. Uh, we have some evidence that these can actually attach to certain proteins, not always histones, um, But that's also an area of great interest to us.
1: So you described that those um, effects are long-lasting effects. Um, are there eraser proteins? Because if there are long-lasting effects, it might suggest that um, the modifications are very, uh, yeah, very uh, strongly attached to the histones, and maybe there is no eraser proteins. But there are there eraser proteins for those uh, modifications?
2: Yeah. So I I will I, I will tease and say that there is. Um, we we've identified an, an eraser mechanism. Although I have to say it's not. Uh, going to be a traditional mechanism. It's more of a rewriting mechanism. So you can actually transition between different states of monoamine elation, which I think is very, uh, very interesting. And of course, as I kind of alluded to, depending on which monoamine you have deposited, those sites will greatly determine what the kind of transcriptional output Uh, is going to be. The other thing I want to mention is that the overall ability to deposit or remove these marks is highly dependent on overall donor availability. So, you know, again, you know, I think classically and specifically in the neuroscience field, we tend to think about these monominalation states or, sorry, monoamines themselves as only existing within the neurons that produce them, right? So you have dopaminergic neurons that make dopamine and dopamine should not exist in an intracellular fashion in any other cell type. Turns out that this is not entirely true, that we do see that cells that themselves do not produce the monoamines also can take up monoamines to some degree and establish these modifications. And so that's another area, I think, of of great interest that may also explain how you can fluctuate between different monoamine states uh, in a more dynamic fashion. So I think this idea about persistence, we still don't know if it's because they've actually been put on and never taken off, or if it's that they're put on and they're just constantly reestablished and turned over uh, because you have such high donor uh, concentrations within the cell.
1: So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. It seems that you have a lot, lot of ideas and you are um, you don't know where to start um, in realizing them. But the first question would be, um, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you indeed have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer?
2: So, I mean, I think, um, I mean, yes to no. So, you know, I think when when I first started thinking about protein histomonavunilation, uh, it was definitely kind of a high risk, high reward type of project. Uh, we experienced a lot of failure early on. My uh, amazing first postdoc, Lorna Fairley, who's now a scientist at Regeneron, she did a lot of work uh, upfront to figure out how we could you know uh, identify these things in devo, uh, establish their existence, and study them mechanistically. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think with every project, there's always ups and downs, but, you know we we were, we were kind of lucky. But again, this wasn't just something I made up in my mind. I mean, at the end of the day, we were drawing upon amazing work from other people. You know, those early studies from Saul Snyder's group and Ed Levinson showing nuclear monoamines, to Michael Bader's group and others who have shown that these marks theoretically can exist. And so I think it's all about taking that type of information, integrating it uh, to find, a, to find a, a solution. And so in that sense, we've been very lucky.
1: In the last 32 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, like I said, we focused a lot on the protein monomethylation states, which is obviously a huge uh, component of my lab. A lot of people are working on that. Um, but the part that we didn't really talk about was the fact that we are, as I mentioned or alluded to earlier, identifying lots of brain enriched reader proteins that haven't been identified in other states. Um, They also seem to be very heavily involved in in many different neurological states. So, for example, we have studies looking at a novel histone reader protein that seems to be triplicated in Down syndrome and and shows loss of function in certain people with autism. Uh, And it seems to be very important for the phenotypic outcomes, at least based on our preclinical models. Um, And I'd say the other thing that we do a lot of uh, in the lab, and we have some work coming out on this soon, uh, knock on wood, uh, is actually looking, you know, starting from the standpoint of human disease. So instead of just starting from basic mechanism and working up to figure out how it's regulated by environmental exposures, actually starting in the context of human neuropsychiatric disease such as major depressive disorder and doing large-scale, uh, uh, you know, profiling. This could be epigenomic profiling that we're now getting into a lot of single cell multi-omics, uh, as uh, I guess a lot of people are. And then the goal was to basically take that information from the human data and be able to take it all the way down the line to studying mechanistically what these changes mean, both in rodent models and also in in vitro models. And so this is something that's near and dear to my heart. I think that In my lab, always and forever, I want us to be able to really be a blend of that basic mechanism or basic mechanistic studies and also uh, functional neuroscience. And so that's kind of the way we, we look at this in the big picture.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good statement to end this interview. Thank you, Ian, for your time and for being on the show.
2: Yes, thank you very much for having me. It's been great.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it you can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.